0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Before I introduce my guest for today, I want to give a little plug for Backstage Babble celebrates Tony Awards history, which will be taking the stage on Monday, August 28th at 7 p.m. at 54 Below in New York City. It will feature trivia, clips, and performances from people who have been nominated for Tony Awards, including Willie Falk, Penny Fuller, Anita Gillette, John Andrew Morrison, Jill O'Hara, Leroy Reams, Austin Pendleton, Virginia Seidel, Jane Summerhays, and Martin Vidnovic, some of whom you've heard in previous episodes of this podcast, as well as performances by Elena Bennett and Damon Evans, as well as a video appearance from Daisy Egan, Trust me when I say you won't want to miss what's bound to be a very special evening, so grab your tickets now. There are even a limited selection of $15 seats available on the 54 Below website. And now, I'm thrilled to welcome my guest for today, a man who needs no introduction other than to say he's one of the most legendary Broadway songwriters who's still working today. I am delighted to welcome Stephen Schwartz. Schwartz.
1: <laughs> so- I would love to start by asking you, um, how did you first become interested in
2: theater? Um, I was pretty young. How old are you now? I was younger than you, but I can get the exact timing.
1: I'm 14.
2: Okay, yes. Well, I was um, about seven years younger than you are now. Um, Actually, I'll be interested in your answering the same question since uh, you're quite young. Um, But I'll tell you my story very quickly. My parents lived next door to a composer um, who was a friend of theirs. His name was George Klein Singer, and he was um, fairly well known for doing what we would now call concept albums. He had a famous, at the time, concept album called Tubby the Tuba, which was about all the different, you know, introducing, young people to the orchestra kind of thing. And he had written um, an album with, um, actually with the lyricist Joe Darien, who went on to write Man of La Mancha, um, that was called Archie and Mejitabel, and was uh, about it, this It sounds funny to say this, but it was sort of based on um, articles that have been in The New Yorker, but was actually about a cockroach named Archie, who was in love with an alley cat named Mahidebel. And Archie was um, sung on the album by Eddie Bracken and actually the person who sang uh, the alley cat Mahidebel on the album was Carol Channing. Oh. Anyway, the album was successful and it was being turned into a Broadway show. And um, so my parents, uh, first of all, we used to go over to visit every now and then, and George would play the new tune he was working on. And it was because of that that I actually started taking piano lessons. That's another story. But um, a couple of years after that, when the show uh, opened on Broadway and only ran a short time, um, and I think I was nine years old by the time it opened, Um, I had that experience that I think is very common to a lot of uh, um, people who wind up being in love with theater and musical theater. Um, The very first time I saw, you know, went in and saw this show, I just completely fell in love with the whole genre and wanted to spend my life there. So um, you know, and and I wound up doing that amazingly Mm -hmm. enough. how about you? How did you you first get interested and how old were you?
0: Oh,
1: um, I was actually seven, too. Um, For me, it was when I saw the revival of On the Town that they did
2: a few years ago. Oh, up in New York, that wonderful revival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: and that made me want to try to learn more.
2: Well, I don't blame you, it was a really good production and I had uh, some good friends in it, actually, oh. so yeah.
1: So I would love to um, ask, so were you at this time listening to styles besides theater music? And were there those kinds of styles that influenced you as you began?
2: Sure. Um, When I was younger... I, first of all, I started taking piano lessons then, um, thanks partly to George Kleinsinger and his recommendation to my parents that I seemed to have some musical ability, um, and so I was studying classical piano, and so I did listen to a good deal of classical music and um, and show music actually, and also um, kind of folk music because my parents were um, big fans of of, uh, kind of folk music and what we would now call world music. I didn't actually listen to a lot of pop music until right towards the end of when I was in high school, and that was the 1960s. So that was the advent of the Beatles and the Motown sound and Burt Bacharach and all the singer songwriters. Uh, like uh, Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and it was it was at that point that I got um, interested in pop music but it wasn't until I was about 16 15 16 that I got it you know started um, to listen to a lot of pop music as well.
1: And at this time were you interested in being both a composer and a lyricist or?
2: I was more thinking I would be a composer. Uh, I didn't really know there was such a thing as a composer-lyricist I should have because of people like Irving Berlin. Um, But uh, yeah, I didn't really plan to be a professional lyricist, although when I was just about your age, um, I wrote a show um, for which I wrote musical lyrics and, you know, did a little bit of work on it with my high school. Um, but I always just thought if I was gonna do anything, I would be a composer. It wasn't until I was in college at Carnegie Mellon um, and was part of a an extracurricular organization there called Scotch and Soda that presented an original musical every year. And um, I wound up, I started writing lyrics uh, at, at that time. The first couple of shows I did Um, Other people wrote the lyrics, but um, then I started to feel well, you know, really, a lot of times the songs aren't saying exactly what I would like them to say, and maybe I could just do that myself.
1: And how did you end up um, writing a song for the play Butterflies Are Free? which
2: was for Broadway debut. Yes, that was my Broadway debut in, in 1969, for which I was paid the princely sum of $25 a week, <laughs> which to me was, was just amazing. But, uh, and, I, and I don't mean that sarcastically. I was just amazed that I was being paid at all for having written this song. Um, when I first came to New York after I graduated from Carnegie Mellon, um, one of the shows that I had done with uh, this organization, I told you about Scotch and Soda. um, When it was a Carnegie Mellon was called Pippin Pippin. Um, Not quite sure why there were two Pippins in the title. Uh, I don't remember anymore. But anyway, when I came to New York, I was pursuing the idea of maybe getting that professionally produced. And through a series of events of playing the score for uh, various people, I wound up getting introduced to the woman who would become my agent. Her name was Shirley Bernstein, and she was Leonard Bernstein's sister, but she was a professional um, theatrical agent, Um, represented a lot of wonderful writers like Arthur Lawrence and uh, subsequently Joe Stein. And actually, as a little trivia item, very briefly, she she represented Winnie Holtzman, way back in the day. But in any event, um, Shirley also represented the actor Keir DeLay, who was best known for the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. And Keir was appearing in this show. He was going to appear in a summer uh, stock production of this new play called Butterflies Are Free that had aspirations of maybe coming into New York if it proved successful. And it was a show about a folk singer. And they needed a song that he had written, and Shirley reached out to me and said, "You know, listen, do you want to take a crack at this song? And uh, I'll send it into the producer and see if they'll um, if they'll use it." And uh, she sent me the script, and I read it, and I wrote the song. And um, as as people now know, though at the time it was a spoiler, um, "Butterflies Are Free" was a play about a young man who's actually blind. Um, and wants to be a, a folk singer, and you don't know for the first part of the show that she that he's blind, and it comes as a surprise about twenty minutes into the show when he bumps into a piece of furniture that's gotten inadvertently moved. Um, but in any event, when I wrote the song because he was blind, uh, I decided not to have any vis- visual images in the song. That everything would be things you feel or hear. Um, and I guess that appealed to the producer, whose name was Arthur Whitelaw. And so he uh, he accepted the song and that's how I had my Broadway debut.
1: Oh yeah. And so that um, version of Pippin Pippin that you presented at Scotch and Soda, how different was that than Pippin when it came to Broadway?
2: Entirely. Oh. In the time it came to Broadway, there was not a single word of dialogue, <laughs> a single note of music, or note of lyric that was in the show um, in Pittsburgh that remained in the show. I should say that um, when I worked on the show in Pittsburgh, I worked with a a friend of mine who was also a drama student at Carnegie Mellon named Ron Strauss. And um, it was actually his idea um, in, in the first place. He had found a little paragraph in a history textbook about the son of Charlemagne Um, who uh, um, tried to overthrow his father and got condemned to a monastery for his trouble. And uh, at the time, we as drama students were all very enamored of the play, The Lion in Winter by James Goldman, um, which has a lot of really crackling dialogue and is a lot of fun. And um, Ron and I thought it would be fun to do a musical kind of in the spirit of the Lion and Winter a medieval melodrama. And that's what the original Pippin Pippin was. But then as it developed and transmogrified, um, when I came to New York and Ron was not working on it anymore, um, you know, it sort of turned into this contemporary story of a young man in search of himself. So all that remained were the names Pippin and the fact that he was the son of Charlemagne and Fastrada. And um, actually Bertha was was actually named Bertrada in the original, cause that was her historical name. And that's what remained of the ship.
1: And how did you eventually sort of meet with Roger Herson and Bob Posse?
2: Um, w- well, Roger was recommended to me um, by another agent in Shirley Bernstein's um, office and her agency. Um, I was looking for a, a book writer to, to work with me and um, I was sent a couple of Rogers plays and I really liked them. They were very sort of um, kind of theater of the, the absurd. They were, you know, weird things would happen inexplicably um, and they had a very kind of dark comedy to them. And I just thought tonally they were right for the kind of thing that I wanted to do. Um, So yeah, so I I met with Roger and we hit it off even though he was, uh, you know, considerably about 15 years older than me. Um, But we, uh, you know, we hit it off and he agreed to become the book writer and he and I stayed friends for the rest of our lives. And then Bob um, came into it because of course, we were looking for a director at a certain point. Um, Bob was not the first director we went to, it will interest you to know, um, two incredibly talented men who are no longer with us, Hal Prince and Michael Bennett, oh. were two directors that we first approached. Um, both of them turned the show down. Uh, though Hal, um, though he sort of disavowed this later on, but when we met with Hal, it was his suggestion that we take what was at that time the entire show and make it the first act um, and then tell what happened after the unsuccessful attempt uh, on Charlemagne's life by Pippin. And so the whole second act with Catherine, et cetera, got written because of Hal, although he claims that he never did make that suggestion, but of course I remember he did. But in any event, neither Hal nor Michael were interested in doing the show. And then Stuart Ostrow, our producer, Um, suggested Bob Fosse. And um, I was a big fan of Bob's work um, from Broadway and also um, from the movie of Sweet Charity, which I know was not a great critical success, but I had liked it very, very much and really liked uh, the staging, et cetera. Um, And so I was very excited to, to meet with Bob and did so, and Bob took it on.
1: Are there things I'd be if you want to talk about this? Are there things that you would have done differently than what Bob Fosse did in terms of staging? Or,
2: um, yeah, there were a, a lot of things that um, Bob and I clashed about. Um, some of them I think I was right about, and some of them I think he was right about. Um, you know, I felt that some of what he was doing was actually undercutting the character of Tippin, um, and. Uh, you know, there's certain other choices of a kind of humor that I thought was a little lowbrow, to be honest, for um, for my taste. Um, on the other hand, his uh, the sort of theatricality of what he did and he brought his sort of traditional darkness to it. Um, I think was uh, you know obviously a very good choice. I think the tension between myself, and remember, I was 24 years old when Pippin opened. So you know, I was sort of young and naive um, in a lot of ways. And I think the tension between that um, kind of point of view and Bob's much more jaded uh, and cynical point of view is part of the show and part of what makes it work. Um, you know, subsequent the 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 subsequent Broadway revival that was done by Diane Paulus, um which I adored, I think really um, hit a balance that was more um, pleasing to me in terms of the the content of the show itself, um, the book, music, and lyrics, because we were able to make some adjustments in it, but. Um, yeah, so uh, I think there were specifics about um, what Bob did that I was never crazy about. But on the other hand, I think if I'd entirely gotten my way, the show wouldn't have worked. So it, yeah. it, I think ultimately it worked out.
1: And I know that there are a lot of people who view Pippin as sort of a response to the Vietnam War, but do, did you view it that way? And would you say that the your other works around that time, like God's fell or things like that, are also...
2: Reflecting on that. Yes, I think uh, unquestionably, part of Pip the whole war section is definitely, was definitely a response to the Vietnam War. Um, and indeed, the whole politics of it were a response to the politics of the time, just as um, Godspell was also a response, I think, to the um, divisions in our society at the time. Um, which seemed very severe, oddly enough. Looking at it now and, and how divided America is now, that was nothing back then. You know, there was a distinct generational mostly difference of opinion about the war. Um, but, not, but it didn't go as widely as everything now being political and everybody feeling they have to disagree about everything. Um, It's much worse now than it was then, but definitely um, both those shows were of their time and were a response um, politically and socially to the events that were going on. Yeah,
1: and I'd be curious to know, this is skipping ahead, but would you say that say Wicked, which was much later was also a response to that time?
2: Well, not to that time, it was unquestionably to its time. Um, And uh, particularly the character of the wizard. Um, You know, when Winnie and I started working on the show, Bill Clinton was president. And so there are aspects of Bill Clinton that are um, contained in the wizard, um, particularly, you know, the line where Elphaba says to the wizard, so you lied to them and he says only verbally, that's a very Bill Clinton Kind of line, um, and I say that as a Bill Clinton fan and someone who voted for him twice. Um, and then George W. Bush became president, and you know the whole idea of um, truth—the the beginnings of post-truth, which of course are much worse now. But at the time, where they would just make things up and then yeah. you know uh, um, kind of feed them to the public to justify going to wars that you know. They wanted to go to etc., um, and the line where uh, the wizard says, um, "You know, where I'm from, we know that the best way to bring people together is to give them a really good enemy." That was in direct response, obviously, to uh, George W. Bush. So the point being that there's a lot of there were a lot of politics in response to the uh, contemporary politics in Wicked. What's interesting is that. Um, wicked politically seems to have become more relevant now because we're living in such a post-truth and time of quote, alternative facts. Um, But it was written before any of the, you know, the Trump era disregard for truth. And
1: so you mentioned earlier that um, your agent was Shirley Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein's sister. And so was that what led to you doing mass with Leonard That's Bernstein?
2: That's exactly right. Yes, oh. you were entirely correct, Charles. Um, Shirley, who was very close to her brother, knew that he had a deadline for this commission um, of a piece to open the Kennedy Center, and that he was struggling to meet the deadline and had looked for um, collaborators uh, among people with whom he had worked before, Comden and Green and Steve Sondheim, and for various reasons, those collaborations didn't happen. Um, And so she um, brought him down actually to see Godspell uh, in one day in May, and uh, he was taken with it and agreed to uh, meet with me. And so he and I had a meeting and talked about what he was trying to accomplish with mass and, um, you know, and I signed on to do it. And that was uh, an amazing experience to work with the, you know, one of the great musicians of the 20th century and someone I had uh, admired since I was younger than you are now.
1: Yeah. And what was it like to to be in a room with him and also with Alvin Ailey, who was choreographer?
2: Yeah. Well, Lenny was an enormously generous um, personality. And uh, um, I, I think he was the most generous person I've ever met in my life in terms of being absolutely world famous. And yet putting that aside when he was dealing with individuals, you know, he made everybody he spoke to feel important. I once um, spoke to somebody who played the second clarinet in uh, an orchestra that Bernstein conducted. And she said to me, you, when you are playing in his orchestra, you feel that he's looking at you through the entire piece, that he's only focused just on you. Um, and every member of the orchestra feels that way. Um, He had that kind of a personality, and so uh, in addition to learning so much from him about music and about uh, wordplay, because he was uh, very fond of such things, uh, I also learned a lot about how to treat people, um, how to behave towards others, even if you're a famous person. And that was a huge influence on me. So he's Lenny was as close to a mentor as I ever had. Um, Alvin, uh, I didn't have that much interaction with Alvin Ailey um, because he was the choreographer and and I didn't write the music, Uh, but uh, obviously we were all together a lot of the time. And the thing I most remember about Alvin Ailey was his sense of humor. He was very funny and had a really kind of sardonic, quiet but sardonic sense of humor, and uh, he made us all laugh a lot of the time, particularly um, during the sort of the tense time of trying to get the show, uh, get the piece ready for uh, its premiere.
1: And so you mentioned about Leonard Bernstein and wordplay, and you have, of course, a lot of famous even in Wicked alone. There are tons of famous rhymes in there and wordplay, and. I'd be curious to know, do you use a rhyming dictionary while writing or do things come to you?
2: No, I do use a rhyming dictionary um, and it's actually the one that uh, Steve Sondheim also recommended when talking about rhyming dictionary, um, which is an old one now. um, And it's the, um, oh, I was gonna say Clement Wood, but that's not, I think Clement Wood, maybe it is Clement Wood, I'm trying to remember now. Um, actually since we're on a podcast i think i have a i can go run in and look hold on one second um yes it's Clement woods rhyming dictionary and what's good about it is that um as steve sondheim has said the words are in columns um not next to each other so your eye can kind of just scan down the column and see if something jumps out at you i mostly use it To rule out not having thought, uh, to to make sure there isn't something I had that I didn't think of that might be better than what I have thought of. Um, But um, sometimes, if I'm starting on a song and I know the, you know, what the title is going to be, I'll I'll just uh, one of the first things I'll do is just look up all the rhymes. That exist for a couple of the important words in the title, just to see, you know, what what might uh, be there. Um, I don't use it that frequently because the fun of rhymes, really fun rhymes, are the ones that aren't in the dictionary, that you sort of stumble on yourself, you know, with little inner rhyme tricks, etc. Um, but yeah, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Uh, I, I, I never cracked that Clement Wood book because I, I most certainly have and do.
1: And so um, after Bernstein's Mass, I believe was the magic show. And so how did the magic show start for you? How did
2: that? A magic show happened because uh, the producers of Godspell, Edgar Lansbury and Joe Baru, happened to be up in Toronto where they were producing a revival of Gypsy, starring Edgar's uh, sister, Angela Lansbury. And while they were up there, they heard about it, went to see a little magic act by a Canadian magician named Doug Henning. And uh, they were very impressed with his style and that he was so different than how people thought of magicians at the time. And he was very sort of, you know, he was sort of young and hippie-esque, et cetera, and kind of like a character out of Godstone yeah. And so they phoned me and said, look, we know you like magic and there's this kid here in Toronto and we think you should make, we think maybe there's a show here. Um, why don't we bring you up to Toronto and you go see his show? And so that, that's how it happened. Um, the thing that was sort of, Challenging but also fun about the magic show is that Doug didn't sing, oh. and so uh, we were writing a show about a central character who was never going to sing. And I and um the book writer Bob Randall um and the director Grover Dale sort of decided, well, instead of singing, Doug will do um, illusions. He'll will we'll integrate the illusions that he. Can do into the story, and those will be his songs, and then everybody else will sing. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's how that came about.
1: Yeah. And so that leads me to a sort of broader question, which is as a songwriter, are you willing to sort of take a like suggestion or a note from a star of a show or?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll take a note or a suggestion from anybody. Um, doesn't mean I'll necessarily do it, but I will. Yeah, I'll listen to to, to anybody, and um, indeed, um, you know, I've I've had good things happen from suggestions that uh, others have made. I think I've sort of famously told the stories about Wicked that um, the character of Glinda, the fact that she sings in soprano at all, is because Christian Chenoweth. Said, you know, I have this soprano, and I never get to use it um, in on in theater. I, I you know, I'll, in concerts I'll do it, but I never actually get to sing in soprano in any of the shows. I'm casting and I'd love to find a way to use it. And so, you know, we made the discovery that when Glinda is sort of being the public Glinda, that she could sing in soprano, and that would never have happened if it were not for Kristen. And then I've also frequently told of teaching um, "Defying Gravity" to Adina Menzel, and um, the last verse of "Defying Gravity," uh, the the tune was essentially the same as the first two verses. And it was Adina, when she was learning it, who said, "You know, at this point, I'm probably going to be flying, and I feel as if the vocal should just stay up higher because I'm going to be." You know, higher. And uh, you know, I had concerns about her being able to do that eight times a week, but she reassured me that she could, and that's why a lot of that last verse of defined Gravity is 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 set as high as it is. That was a suggestion from Medina. So um, yeah, these things happen all the time.
1: Oh yeah. So to go back briefly to the magic show, I'd love to ask what was it like to at such a young age have three. Giant hits running at the same time on Broadway.
2: Um, it was uh, it was a sort of a mixed blessing. I mean, obviously, it was a wonderful thing for me um, financially and uh, from a, a kind of, uh, um, I guess, self confidence point of view. But uh, it was also it, it engendered a lot of resentment, frankly, uh-huh. um, from a lot of the theater community and. Writers who felt, and perhaps accurately, that I certainly had not paid the dues that um, most writers do and most people who are in the theater do, and so um, you know there was I I, I encountered a lot of hostility, which was uh, somewhat bewildering to me at the time, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a complicated experience. I, I can't say that I'm sorry. I can't say that I would have traded that. But, um, you know, I'm I'm very friendly with with Alan Menken. We collaborate a lot. And Alan's career has been more of a slow build than mine. I mean, he was pretty young when he had a big hit with Little Shop of Horrors, But, you know, it, it sort of has built and built and built. And I think consequently, he has had an easier time uh, um, or it certainly seems to to do it better in terms of handling that aspect of his career. Yeah, you know, I found I found that pretty challenging when, uh, you know, when I was younger.
1: And so, um, one of the next shows you did, which was not quite as successful, was working. Um, right. And so, how did you first? What was it with Studs? Did you actually collaborate with Studs Terkel? Or
2: oh yes. Oh. Um, I was I heard about the book and was very intrigued by the idea of the book. Um, it spoke to me personally. And uh, so I contacted Studs um, to get the rights and flew out to Chicago to meet with him. And at first he was quite dubious as to the possibility of this becoming a musical, but um, gradually was won over and was very, um, very contributive in terms of ideas he had for specific characters who might um, be featured. Um, he was uh, we we tried out at first in Chicago and he was um, contributive then and, and again in New York. And then when the show was not initially successful in New York, but then started to be being done all over the country and we were revising it to try to make sure that it would work um studs was particularly helpful at that time
1: oh yeah and were there any stories that you are sorry that you didn't get to include but there wasn't enough time or for whatever reason
2: well sure there were a lot of characters i mean the hardest thing with with working was what to leave out yeah um and uh the the, the regret as as you know um the score for working was contributed by several different writers. Um, It was originally my intention to do all the songs, but then as I started um, writing them, I began to realize that in a lot of instances, I was essentially writing pastiche um, and imitating other writers whom I felt would be more appropriate for specific characters. And that didn't feel right to me for this particular um, piece, I thought the veracity of tone was very important, and so I started reaching out to other songwriters um, to contribute, um, and the biggest regret I had was that after the show was essentially finished and there wasn't really room for any other songwriters, I heard from Billy Joel um, who I reached out to, you know, months ago, and never heard back from him. And then finally, I heard from him saying, Oh, I'd be interested in committing something. But it, it was too late, though, frankly, in retrospect, I probably should just have said sure and found a way to because because he was so much he was so great at writing those sorts of characters. If you think of some of his songs, you know, he was so good at writing sort of blue collar characters. So um yeah I, I regret that Billy Joel never became part of working. But then happily years later as we were updating the show, Le Manuel Miranda um came into the uh the group of, of writers. So um that was that somewhat made up for it.
1: Yeah. And as a, um, as a composer, and of course, having all these different composers, how did you maintain the sort of different musical styles of different characters while also making it sound unified?
2: Um, well, I, each of the composers uh, was sort of chosen for um, the particular sound that he or she would bring to it. I mean, the, obviously, Mickey Grant um, wrote uh, African-American characters and um, Craig Carnelia had his own sort of point of view, James Taylor um, with his kind of folk um, point of view uh, musically um, seemed appropriate for characters for whom he wrote. Um, Yeah, so it it was just more a question of what order things came in and not bunching everything up in one place or another, but having a flow of, um, you know, from the from the different writers. Uh, but I, pr- I didn't really interfere, if that's the right word, with the work of any of the writers, I basically, you know, once they decided which characters they were going to write, um, you know, I basically just let, let them do it. Uh, every now and then, um, <laughs> with, with, with Craig Carnelia, at, at one point, because he, he hadn't finished one song and it was getting very, very close to actually performing it. I did have to threaten Craig that I was going to have the song performed and where the lyrics were not finished. I was going to have the actors go la 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 until he finished the lyrics. Of course, I never would actually have done that, but it did induce him to finish the lyrics in time.
1: And so what made you decide to take on this show as a director, which you hadn't done before?
2: Well, I was a directing major in oh. uh, at Carnegie Mellon. And um, at the time, I had sort of entertained the idea that uh, I would direct as well someday. And, um, you know, I sort of liked being a control freak. I sort of liked um, the ability to do that. I learned that... It was not a good idea for me to direct a show for which I was also uh, one of the writers um, and particularly the book writer. Um, I know James Lepine somehow manages to do that, but I think that's a very challenging thing to, to achieve. I think that um, there's a kind of natural adversarial relationship between the writer and the director that's a good thing yeah. uh, and that leads to a, a better show and by adversarial I don't necessarily mean that you're fighting all the time but just that the, the clashing points of view help to realize uh help to achieve a better show um and I've, I've come to learn that and so I would never again direct a show that I was of which I was also the writer now um you know I have someone in the family my son Scott Schwartz who's a, a, a terrific director, and frankly, a better director than I ever was. So now he's the director in the family. Um, but even if that weren't the case, um, though I might consider directing something, I would not direct something that I had also written.
1: Yeah, yeah. And but another show where you, um, which is one of my favorite shows that I love, where you did take over the direction at one point was Rags. Um, out of town, and so what inspired that decision? Because I know with that it was taking over from Joan McLean Silver. Was
2: well, you? actually, Joan micklin Silver sort of took over from me, and then oh. what the, the way what happened with Rats was that I came into the show as director. Not I was not going to write that show oh. or be one of the writers of the show, and then um, the lyricist for whatever reason wasn't really working out. And Charles Strauss asked me if I would um, come in as lyricist, uh, and he pointed to the example of Martin Charnin, who had done the lyrics for Annie and also directed. Um, although in that instance he had Mike Nichols, and you know, perhaps <laughs> if I'd had Mike Nichols, it would have been different. But. Um, so gradually i started writing the lyrics for the show and then apropos of what i've just told you about working i came to feel well i'm really one of the writers we should have a director a different director and so um we went looking for a director we um came came up with john McLean silver whom i liked very much and who i think had some really good ideas but um for various reasons that. she didn't gel well with Charles and with, um, you know, there there were a lot of problems uh, trying to figure out the story of Rags, which we never solved uh, initially. Mm -hmm. We didn't solve for the initial production. But anyway, when Joan left, um, as we were looking for another director, um, you know, Charles asked if I would uh, take over until we could bring another director in. Yeah.
1: And what was it like to, I don't want to call it a lesser role, but to sort of have the decreased control of only writing the lyrics rather? Than...
2: Well, as I say, I was, originally I, I wasn't planning to be a writer on that show <laughs> yeah, at all. But, um, I but I really liked uh, working with Charles very much. And um, because it turned out as our um, collaboration style developed, that we worked almost entirely music first, uh, that's when I really feel I learned how to write lyrics as a craft. I think up until then, because I was writing my own lyrics essentially, or writing lyrics um, in the case of Mass um, in, in a different way for, for Lennon Bernstein, I was going a lot on instinct and um, just, uh, um, you know, not really examining the craft of lyric writing, and I feel like on rags that's when I learned a lot about um, the you know process and craft of writing lyrics. So I think it improved my uh, abilities as a lyricist.
1: Yeah, and but did you do um, did you do music first when it was you writing both, or did you do them sort of intertwined?
2: It sort of happened together. Yeah. Um, it does seem that music leads or at least the rhythm, the basic rhythm of the music leads. So I always kind of know, even if I don't have the tune itself or the exact harmonies, I kind of know what it's going to be when I'm writing, um, lyrics for myself, um, if I don't actually have the music, but, um, yeah, but with, of course, working with someone like Charles or subsequently with Alan Menken, that's coming from them. And then I kind of um, internalize their music and um, and then try to fit the lyrics to, to that music.
1: Yeah, and then to ask sort of a similar but a broader question, do you think that the book should come before the music and lyrics or vice versa? Or does that also sort of happen together?
2: Um, the book has to lead in my opinion um the entire book needn't be written before uh songs can be written um well first of all i think what it, it, it in terms of my process and the, and the way that's developed what needs to happen first is the structure the outline the storyboard whatever you want to call it and that's something that is arrived at by all the collaborators. It can just be the um, songwriter or songwriters and the book writer. Um, It can include a director. If there's a director in the process at that point, it could include a producer. If there's a creative producer who's involved at that point, you know, I've had it happen various ways, but, I think most importantly, one needs to figure out the structure of the entire show. That's not to say it's not going to change over time. Of course, as one writes, it's going to change because you'll make discoveries, but but the sort of basic um, thrust of the story and kind of the basic destination, if you will, is, is clear to everybody. Then for me, it's very important that the book writer write some stuff to get a sense of how the characters speak and what's the tone of the dialogue and what's the flow of it and 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 all like that it would be i I wouldn't not really consider writing songs without some kind of work from the book writer even if it's only a couple of scenes
1: yeah and I would love to ask about a great book writer who you worked with later on, which was Aaron Sorkin on Houdini.
2: Um, right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wanted to do Houdini basically because of Aaron Sorkin, because I knew he was writing, he was at that time going to be writing the um, the book. And I just was and remain such a huge admirer of his. Um, but, um, both of us struggled with the story, trying to find an actual story for the character of Houdini. Um, and then, at a certain point, Aaron, um, so Aaron's, soul, Aaron's uh, television show, Newsroom, got picked up, and he went off to write that, and he just didn't have time anymore to continue working on the book. So he kind of left the project and gradually it, uh, disintegrated but um I certainly had a, a great time just being in the room with Aaron and just talking to him I mean he's mm-hmm. a fascinating and really smart guy and yeah. his his take on politics and the sort of society etc is very very interesting so even though no show ever came out of it um, I really valued the experience of having been in the room with Aaron yeah
1: and are there other shows or show ideas that you've started writing either by yourself or with a collaborator that sort of never happened like that
2: yeah um you know a, a couple of them I was uh yeah maybe maybe uh, I should be a little coy about this. I was gonna mention one thing that I was doing and then decided I couldn't do, but it still may be happening. And so with not with me. So uh, I think maybe I won't talk about it. But let me just say that the answer is, yes, um, there have been things that I've undertaken and then gotten a ways into and just felt like like, I can't find this. I can't yeah. I can't get inside the characters. Or I can't figure out with my collaborators what is this actually about, and why why should anybody care about this? You know those sort of big questions. If um, because because my choice to work on something is very instinctive. You know, an idea is either brought to me, or I come across something, and I think, oh, that feels I can't even tell you why, but that feels like something for me. Um, and usually that it is, but yeah. occasionally it's not. Occasionally I get into it and I just can't really find it.
1: But are, are there other ideas that you have right now or that you would want to do in the future?
2: Well, there are some things I'm working on right now. There are a couple oh. of, couple of uh, shows mm-hmm. that um, what, one of which uh, I've I, just gotten the or, or the, the group has just gotten the rights for. I think I can maybe maybe talk about this. Um, but it's uh, based on a documentary called The Queen of Versailles. Um, and uh, it took quite a while to get the rights uh, for it. that was rather complicated. Um, but uh, now I and my collaborators have the rights and so um, we're just starting it. Um, and the uh, the director is going to be Michael Arden, who's uh, somebody I've wanted to work with for a long time. We've wanted to do something together, and then a very talented playwright named Lindsay ferentino is uh, is doing the book, um, and she's had some excellent plays produced, uh, you know, off Broadway. Uh, and that's just just in the early stages right now. And then there's a, another project which I can't talk about because we're struggling. <laughs> to get the rights. Um, but if we do, then, you know, uh, hopefully that will happen. I mean, there have been things I've wanted to do that I haven't been able to get the rights for. Um, when I read the book, um, The Curious Incident of the Dog at Night, oh. I tried to get the rights for that, because I thought the idea of writing music for um, a character who's autistic, would would be very interesting, because the, the sort of patterns Uh, uh, in the way they think and speak. Um, And uh, I couldn't get the rights from the author who, um, and then when I saw the absolutely brilliant (laughs) play that was made of it, I was like, oh, well, um, I can see why he wanted to do it this way instead. Um, And I tried to get the rights for a book called Perfume, uh, which is kind of a a horror story. about uh, someone with an extraordinary sense of smell who develops perfumes that have um, very potent effects on people. Um, and I couldn't get the rights for that either. So those are just two examples of things I've tried for and, and haven't gotten.
1: Oh, but that that's very exciting about the new musical one.
2: Yeah, hear yeah. That. Just um, it's been quite a while since I you know I started a new show from scratch and uh you know we do we have been working for a while getting an outline together and structure etc so we're actually at the phase now where we can begin writing
1: yeah and so you're talking a little bit about like finding a show and so that leads me to ask I'm working and the Baker's wife and Braggs were all shows you did in the seventies and eighties, and then you've continued to revise all of them over time. And so what has sort of inspired you to keep going with those?
2: Well, in all three cases, and I would add to that list, Children of Eden, um, in all three cases, or now four cases, they were shows that in their initial commercial outings didn't succeed, but I felt, had still had the potential to be shows that could work, that we just hadn't solved them, which is different than what we were talking about with you know some of these other shows where I just came to the conclusion, I there's something I this isn't this isn't a good fit for me, or I can't figure this out. In the cases of those four shows, I just thought, like, well, there's a show, there's a, a a successful show hidden in here somewhere. We just haven't found it yet. Um, and actually, that's turned out to be the case with with all four of those shows. Um, you know, in the case of Working and in the case of Children of Eden, the sort of resurrection, if you will, um, and ultimate success of those shows happened faster. Um, but even um, Baker's Wife and event, you know, eventually Rags with some real. Um, back to square one revisions um, ha- have now become shows that uh, can be can be and have been successfully produced.
1: And so I would love to um, ask you a little bit about The Baker's Wife um, and specifically what it was like to collaborate with David Merrick, who of course famously stole the Meadowlark
0: music.
2: Yeah, well, he sort of famously hated the song uh, Meadowlark and at one point as a sort of, um, Just grand gesture. Uh, I actually wasn't there when this happened, but he apparently went into the the orchestra pit and and took all the music from Meadowlark away. So the song couldn't be performed at that performance. But of course it was back in the next day because legally he wasn't entitled to do that. Um, I think with David Merrick, he had produced the show Fanny successfully, which was another musical based on the work of the filmmaker Marcel Pagnol, and I think he was hoping for a show like Fanny. That um, and so there, I think from the outset there was a kind of clash of sensibility in terms of the kind of show that he was looking for and the kind of show that uh, Joe Stone and I were looking to do. Um, although I have to say I've never seen the show Fanny, but I think the score is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's, it's a, a, an absolutely beautiful score by Harold Crone. Um So, you know, maybe it was a, a great show too. I don't know, I've never seen it. But my impression is that it was a more of a kind of Broadway show, if you know what I mean. And Baker's Wife, it turns out, is, is such an intimate little show um there was a recent um showcase production done in new york which was uh, a very good production and um was very successful and when i went in to talk to the actors um when they were first starting you know we talked about sort of the the style of the show and and how it's it's like it's there's nothing about it that's like um presentationally musical theater. It's sort of like doing checkoff. And um, I used an example of a show that I liked very much and thought was brilliantly acted and directed called The Band's Visit. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, I said, it's a show like that where you never actually feel anyone is performing. You're just sort of pulling a curtain aside and looking at life. And um, that's, the, that's the feel of uh, Baker's Wife. Um, I should also say with Baker's Wife that um, it went through so many um, iterations, both in its off, uh, in its pre-Broadway tryout, and then of course it never um, came into New York, and then as people tried to make it work subsequently. But it was really um, in the 80s, the director, Trevor Nunn, who solved um, how to do the show, even though we didn't entirely get it right for his production. But his guidance of how to structure the show and what to concentrate on and what not to concentrate on um, led ultimately to the um, successfully fixing the show.
1: Yeah. And how much are you willing as a songwriter to like cut songs? Is that something that you do a lot or? Something oh, sure. That's...
2: Yeah. I mean, um, that I think that's just the you know if you if you're not willing to write songs and then throw them out, you shouldn't be doing musical theater. <laughs> Um, I think it might have been Stephen Sondheim who said that uh, um, musicals are not so much written as rewritten and uh, whoever said it truer words were never spoken and also there's a saying from um, Tom Jones the writer one of the writers of the fantastic that in a musical um, everything is more important than anything so by by which of course he means that it's it's the big picture of the show and every, everything has to serve the show and even if there's a marvelous m- m- song or moment that by itself seems wonderful if it's not serving the show it has to go and that's just an attitude that one has to have if one's writing musical theater um, you know you you have to like revising and you have to like collaboration and if you don't like those things, then you should you should find another way to express your musical um, inclinations. Yeah,
1: and so I know we don't have that much time left, but I'd love to ask you two more questions if that's all right. Um, sure. The first being, and again, I don't know how much you want to say that about this, but I'd love to ask you about the Wicked movie that's upcoming. And sure, I'll tell you what I can tell you. What has it been like to put that together? Because I know the casting announcement was long awaited and very exciting.
2: Yeah. Um. First of all, I can tell your listeners that um, I expect I have been told that there are going to be some announcements about the movie coming at the end of this month. This is oh. April of 2022. I don't know exactly <laughs> when people are going to hear what you've put together. Um, and so there are some things that I can't say now but that I are going to be announced very soon um, having to do with timing of the movie and and certain other things. Um, What I can tell you is that it has been a really exhilarating experience um, to go back to that story that I have such um, personal affinity for with Winnie Holtzman who I love in every way as a writer and as a human being and as a friend. And with um, John Chu, our fantastic director and who's very, very smart and has been wonderful to work with dramaturgically. And Mark Platt, who was our original um, creative producer and who's very, very good at uh, story as well. to really get in there and figure out, all right, how do we tell this story from a cinematic point of view? Um, and that's been really uh, so exciting and so much fun. And uh, I'm really happy with where things are. Um, you know, Of course, not, not a single frame has been shot. And indeed, we only have two people cast right now albeit they're rather important, <laughs> but um, but I think a lot is about to happen. And yeah. um, I, so far I've really been enjoying it um, and I'm really excited about the possibilities for it. I think, you know, it, it could really be terrific.
1: Yeah. And then the final question I'd love to ask is with such a legendary career in the theater, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out in songwriting?
2: Um, And by starting out in songwriting, I think you you mean specifically who wants to write for musical theater? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because that's, because that it's a very, as some of what we've already discussed, it's a very specific um, medium, and there are things to know about. For instance, the the extent to which you will be collaborating, and um, the extent to which you will be rewriting. Um, I would say two things. I would say that it's very helpful to know what's come before. Uh, You know, I, from the time I was a kid and fell in love with musical theater, would um, listen to cast albums and read librettos and analyze for myself the songs that really uh, struck me. Uh, to try to figure out what about them in terms of how they were structured um, was making them so effective. And just um, learning a lot about uh what, what makes musical theater work and uh and and forming my own opinions as to what I responded to and what I didn't respond to. Um and then you know, I brought that to the musicals that I started to work on. And then um, that's the other thing, I started writing musicals. And I was very fortunate when I was in college to have written basically four musicals or more accurately three musicals in a one act opera from scratch and seen had them performed. And in an extremely safe environment, where it didn't actually matter if they were good or not because they weren't. Um, and but I learned so much from that experience that by the time, uh, you know, I was doing it professionally, uh, you know, I, I had some I had some uh, experience under my belt. I mean, I don't think one should expect the first show that one first musical that one writes actually to get produced. I mean, occasionally that happens as with the case of, in the case of In the Heights. Um, And to some extent, one could say that about Pippin, but both those shows were hugely, hugely revised from when, um, in the case of In the Heights, when they were at Wesleyan and in the case of of Pippin, when it was at Carnegie Mellon. Um, Yeah, so what I would say is learn where, this all came from draw your own conclusions about it so so that you're coming from your own personal point of view and then write things and and do anything you can to find a way to see those things have them be read or perform somewhere with some kind of audience obviously you want it to be as I said, in the safest, most sheltered way possible um, at first, but that's how you learn.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this and thank
0: you for all the wonderful shows that
2: you've given us. Oh, thank you, Charles. It was my pleasure to talk to you and I hope- Listeners,
0: thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony-nominated actress, Josie de Guzman, Josie de Guzman will be presenting a show featuring stories and songs from her life and career at the Green Room 42 on September 8th and 10th. Among her Broadway credits include starring in the revivals of West Side Story and Guys and Dolls, as well as Runaways, Carmelina, and Nick and Nora. She's also performed in countless plays at the Alley Theater in Houston, and in She Loves Me, The Music Man, Carmen, and others around the country. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.